This is the Go Pack Podcast with your host, Jessica Curtis. We're so excited today to have Congresswoman Claudia Tenney here with us. You and I have had the pleasure of connecting in the past at a few Go Pack events, but I will say it's always great to have another New Yorker with me as I hail from Orange County, New York. So before we start anything else, I want to know if it's the Jets the Giants, or the Buffalo Bills? Well, I grew up as a Bills and Giants fan, but I'm a big Bills fan now. My son is also a Bills fan, but my brothers are still Giants fans, and my cousins are all Jets fans. So the only true New York team, though, are the Bills. (laughs) And I have the unfortunate of being a long-suffering New York Jets fan, like your cousins. Well, (laughs) you know, look at there was... I'm old enough to remember Joe Namath so, uh, and, the, and the miracle uh, back then. So where in Orange County are you from? I am from Port Jervis, uh, oh, okay. which is the most western part of Orange County. I had an assembly district where I had Montgomery and Crawford. Oh, okay. So I'm, I'm familiar with Orange County. You know it Believe well. Believe it or not, all the way from Utica. I, that's Well, that's the way the, the districts get drawn, right? It's kind of crazy. Yeah, it was definitely, it was at the time it was considered, or it's still in existence, the longest district created in New York history. And the next one replacing it, I guess, is going to be equally as, as long uh, next year. I don't know why they've decided to stick with that theme, but they have. So <laughs> I, I know what redistricting is like. I've, I've now got, I think, the longest New York district, not the biggest in terms of acreage that would be representative Elise Stefanik, but in terms of length, uh, I actually circle Lake Ontario. I start all the way up in north of Clayton and Jefferson County and circle all the way around to Niagara County, right up against Niagara Falls. Oh, wow. Uh, all the way on the other end of the state. So it's, it's a it's a long district, but it's also uh, really the heart of uh, the agricultural assets of New York uh, and uh, the Finger Lakes District. So it's a really spectacularly beautiful area and very fertile with uh, all kinds of crops, livestock, dairy, apples, uh, wine. We, you know, we're still developing and, and getting great wines coming out of the Finger Lakes region. So it's a, it's a really uh, neat district in many ways. Absolutely. And I, I mean, again, not to toot New York's horn too much, but um, a lot of people always, you know, and you probably get it to some extent also, think New York, you're from New York, so they immediately think New York City. And I, I always am like, you know, the entirety of New York State is very rural, agricultural focused, like my Orange County um, is known for onion farming. But a lot of people don't think of that. And just the, the beauty of the entirety of the state, it's it's uh, it's gorgeous. So I'm, I'm very, very proud to to be speaking to you and to be a fellow New Yorker. Yeah, it's going to be we're, we're heading into the best part of the year, too. It's going to be the fall where we're going to have beautiful, warm days and cool, crisp nights and uh, beautiful foliage coming out. So uh, time to come up to upstate New York and visit. For sure. So you're you're no stranger to, to go pack and the work that we do, uh, you know, working to cultivate leaders on the state level to prepare them to run for higher office. You mentioned it before. You're In addition to being a, a current member of Congress, you also served in the New York State Assembly. So tell me, how has your previous experience in government helped you be the effective leader you are in Congress today? Well, thank you. I actually have a business background. I'm also a lawyer. I was a partner in my firm before I ran our family business, which was a newspaper. So I was in the uh, journalism business and we sold the newspaper. And then I ended up uh, working for our former assemblyman and then uh, ran for the state assembly in 2010. And as a small business owner coming into the assembly, I was definitely I thought I knew something about government until I got to New York and realized just how uh, poorly run the New York State Assembly was. That was uh, under the uh, former uh, speaker, Sheldon Silver, Uh uh, 
who was later uh, removed and uh, since has passed away. But I was just shocked at uh, how, uh, you know, the assembly operated contrary to everything I'd heard about New York state government. But, you know, I understood New York is a very bureaucratic state. It has a very large bureaucracy, very similar to the federal government. So, but I think that, you know, serving in the state assembly in an extreme minority, when I left, it was, there were 108 Democrats to uh, 42 Republicans. So, you know, even when you had a bill that was very meritorious, you could never get it through. You had to find a Democrat and cajole them into introducing it for you and getting it passed because there's just, you know, first of all, no pride in ownership, but also no respect for the minority and and, uh, all the districts. And as you described, all these upstate counties with uh, agriculture and small businesses and the deindustrialization that has occurred over upstate New York, you know, for all these years, And uh, I was just surprised at how poorly run it was and how little care the Democrats in the state assembly had for, you know, the rights of the people that are in upstate New York because they controlled these districts using the redistricting process, very small districts in New York City to maximize the number of Democrats in the House and very large populated, even beyond really the congressional or the constitutional uh, defined limits of how big districts could be upstate where, you know, they packaged in as many Republicans as they could. So I I was used to the unfairness coming out of New York. Uh, Then I got elected to Congress in 2016 and and literally walked into my first Republican conference and thought I saw the promised land. I've never seen so many Republicans in one room and they were from all across the country. And so it was great to hear the different contrasting views, the, uh, you know, a lot of great debate over real important issues, something that we couldn't do much of in the state assembly because it was just not tolerated by the Democrats in mo- in most cases. And were they really, and actually they've continued to curb the amount of debate that you can have. And quite honestly, the Albany press corps really didn't have much concern for the Republicans or the minority view. So that's why, you know, it was just great to be on the federal level. And I think that one of the great things about uh, when I served in my first term in, in Congress and the Republicans were in the majority, the minority had a distinct voice and it was respected and people looked at bipartisan issues. As I came in as a freshman, we actually did a commitment to civility with our Democratic colleagues. And uh, we all uh, committed and pledged to work together to respect each other's views and to endeavor to put in bipartisan legislation and find common ground without having to compromise our principles. And that was something that I thought was really important in our first year. And we, we accomplished quite a bit. Unfortunately, i came back after uh, losing in 2018 and came back in 2020 in a really arduous race uh, with a lot of counting to find the Democrats in power and having the state or the U.S. uh, Congress, particularly the House, look an awful lot like the state assembly that I once knew where the minority voice wasn't, uh, there wasn't consideration or uh, respect for the minority voice, even though the the numbers are so close, Uh, really far left legislation was being uh, thrown in and and even so-called moderate Democrats are voting for these these bills that really they would never have voted for when we were in the majority before. And you could just see that by their voting record. So, uh, you know, to me, I think, you know, what I've noticed is is now that it looks like the Republicans have the opportunity to take back the House. I see some of them, the formerly moderate Democrats who have now very far left records looking to come more to the middle again. So I'm hoping when we take back the House, we can really unite some of those Democrats around the idea that we are an experiment in self-governance. It's about uh, a constitutional republic that the people are empowered. And that's why our representative government is so important and why it's so important to give voice to every member, not just those in the majority. So 
uh, that's something, uh, you know, that I, you know, really just see the big contrast. And I'm a member now of the Small Business Committee. I'm still a small business owner and also the House Foreign Affairs Committee, which was uh, something that's always been a passion of mine. I lived in and worked in the former Yugoslavia and actually worked for the former Yugoslav consulate in 1984 for about a year before I went to law school and worked on the Olympics when they were in Sarajevo, which is now uh Bosnia and uh, really just took uh, an active interest uh, and actually brought and helped repatriate or bring in a number of Bosnian refugees to our community after the war. And while I was still a newspaper owner, uh, we actually um, did the first Bosnian newspaper in Bosnian in my home city. So huh. uh, it's uh, it's it's been um, you know really enjoy the committees I serve on and and really getting to the grassroots and the principles for which we're about self-governance and and getting us there and and making sure that United United States remains uh, a global leader and also a free country that the rest of the world looks to for leadership and guidance. And uh, there's days when I wonder if we're still upholding that those principles that we should be with our exceptionalism. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I mean, you mentioned it already. You sit on the Small Business Committee and the House Foreign Affairs Committee. So what's your take on the state of affairs today? And and do you think America has lost its exceptionalism with rising costs to operate small businesses? Well, I think what's happened is people, especially younger people, have uh, not been imbued with the concept of self-governance. They look to government for everything instead of self-reliance, entrepreneurship, and creating their own uh, ability to really survive and and to thrive. And I think that's part of what I see in the education system that I think I'm concerned about. I see it with a lot of young people, like when I was young and even when my parents were young, you know, it was never about how can government help you? I mean, look at the, you know, the famous JFK, ask not what government can do for you, but what you can do for your government. So People just seem like they are like looking to government, which is exactly what authoritarianism is, is exactly what communism and socialism is, big government, less freedom. And that's something I experienced when I lived in Yugoslavia is although it was not behind the Soviet bloc, it was not considered, it was sort of sandwiched in the kind of in the middle. They looked at the U.S. as somewhat of, a, of an ally and also, you know, kind of maintained a, a neutrality with Russia and the Soviet Union at the time, they were still a, an authoritarian regime based on socialism and communism. And uh, it was a very different uh, view of, and, and re- really, um, you know, the, the state controlling our lives, controlling our ability to speak, our ability to be free. And if you disagreed with the state, even in Yugoslavia, a sort of unique version of, of socialism, I might add, you were sent to an island and they were their famous dissidents, Milovan Gilas and numbers of, of dissidents who stood up to the government in Yugoslavia and they found themselves in in tough spot. I feel like today, uh, unfortunately, some of the Democrats in power and what people are seeing with the DOJ uh, Department of Justice under Merrick Garland and the FBI, you know, raiding the former president, uh, attacking people, uh, Joe Biden's very dark speech in Philadelphia, which is you know, contrary to what we think of Philadelphia being the symbol of freedom, you know, talking about people and and identifying people who believe in making America great are somehow, you know, an enemy of our government, our freedom and of our country. And I, I think, you know, vilifying American fellow Americans is really kind of a dangerous path that we're going down. But I think a lot of young people don't realize that we are about self-governance. We've got to figure out a way to pick ourselves up, our you know, our own by our own bootstraps, get out, create jobs, not wait for government or someone to tell us what to do, but really to be more self-reliant. And that's what worries me right now. I don't see a lot of that coming out of young people. I see a, a lot 
you know, a lot of people I meet. But generally, I, I find that this, you know, constant push to have government solve all the problems is a concern. And it's something that we face throughout the history of this country. And, you know, Reagan always said, we're just uh, one generation away from losing our freedom. But Lincoln even faced this during the Civil War and said that, you know, can we be self-governing? Can we save the republic? Is that something that we can do? And we had a huge test during the Civil War. And I feel like we're almost at a similar spot here. Can we be self-governing? Is that that is the question of the day? Can we actually break out and uh, get away from the, you know, the debt that we're in? A lot of the, the inflationary problems caused by the endless spending and debt that's going on. I mean, there's a lot of really big questions that I think we need to solve, especially if the Republicans get in the majority. There are going to be a lot of hard decisions to make, a lot of hard votes. But if we're going to save this country and we're going to save that concept of self-governance, which is really, you know, um, it's not. It's not a, you know, uh, it, it's really an idea that has uh, is timeless and it's not something that's new that's going to be confronted by our us uniquely, but it's going to look a little different. But I think that that's the big challenge of what we have to do as Americans is find the way to get back our entrepreneurial spirit, our small businesses, prioritizing them, family farms, agricultural, you know, re-industrializing some of our old industrial base. You're from New York State. We were the Empire State mm-hmm. because we had all the capitals. We had all the entrepreneurship. We we had the Erie Canal. We had all these great innovations that brought us to, you know, where we where we were at one point. And we've lost a lot of that over the years. And I think the country is starting to realize that, you know, I just got back from Taiwan. Almost 70% of our specialized uh, semiconductor manufacturing is done in Taiwan, which is part of the People's Republic of China, although in a unique position. We've got to start reshoring our innovation, our technology, and our ability to make things again. And I think that's going to be critically important as we move forward uh, to the concept of retaining our self-governance and saving our country. Absolutely. How do you think we stand as a partner for other countries? Well, you know, in some cases, I think other countries look to us, obviously, uh, for our general principles of freedom and individual rights, which which are the, you know, the cornerstone of our our constitution. I think sometimes countries look to us now, and I be honest with you, I've done some traveling and, and I meet with a lot of foreign ambassadors as, as a member of the Foreign Affairs Committee. They're not certain about how reliable we are as an ally after what happened in Afghanistan, which never should have happened. It was a disaster from every aspect from President Biden, and he refuses to apologize for it. He thinks everything went well, and I think that doesn't reflect well on the United States. This uh, seeing Putin and his uh, reaching out to China, who is our biggest adversary, you could say enemy right now. China's interest is in becoming the global world superpower uh, economically, uh, militarily, and they're very much uh, moving in that direction to to overtake us. And uh, Putin is looking to China. Countries are looking to China. China's using its infrastructure and its its economic muscle around, uh, you know, whether it's Africa, whether it's in in parts of Europe, especially vulnerable areas in the Balkans and Eastern Europe, down into South America, we're seeing, uh, you know, the China uh, using its infrastructure capabilities uh, to really leverage its power with a lot of these countries that looked to us before. So we have to really look at what we're doing as a nation to really build up the strength and uh, and the reliability we have as an ally. And I worry that in many ways, we build a lot of that up, in my opinion, under President Trump. You know, he pushed our allies to do more and do better. I think a lot of people misinterpret that as America alone. We were never about America alone. The the, uh, re- the Trump agenda it was about getting our allies to meet us uh, at least halfway, the ones that could. And, and I say halfway in a percentage way based on the size of the economy. And President Trump got a lot of these uh, countries to move in a positive direction. He used strength. 
He projected strength and strength is a great deterrence. We are now projecting weakness, which is provocative to our enemies. And that's what I'm worried about right now. Uh, but I think there's always hope. We always have, we have a strong foundation as a country, uh, but we need to come together on some of these issues and really show our allies that we are reliable and then we're going to live up to the um, commitments that we make. And I'm not sure that we have in, in, in a lot of cases with the current administration. I'd like to dive in a little bit more into the foreign policy piece. What, what are your thoughts on energy and the role it plays for the United States? How can California make a statement that they will be all electric by 2035, but also tell Californians they cannot charge their cars during a heat wave? Yeah, this is a tragedy. I hate to say it, but New York was ahead of California. We already passed a version of the Green New Deal, very similar to the law passed in California. I wasn't there in the assembly. It happened a few years ago with really overly ambitious goals on this sort of, you know, electrification, shutting down nuclear power plants, cutting off the natural gas exploration, which is a huge huge asset that New York State has. Thankfully, we have some hydropower because we have Niagara Falls, which is almost in my new district. Uh, But energy is critically important to the prosperity of any country, and it is the key. And right now, Putin is leveraging energy. The Chinese are leveraging energy. None of them are worried, even though they're signatories on the uh, Paris Accords, they are the biggest polluters. Neither one of them are complying with what they would claim would be their obligations. China is putting coal plants on. Russia is using whatever uh, means it can. Can. So, uh, you know, destroying ourselves in the name of, uh, you know, electrification is not the answer. Uh, reliability and uh, prosperity are relying are, are going to require an all of the above strategy for energy. Fossil fuels are not the enemy. Uh, fossil fuels and the byproducts, plastics and other things that have been vilified by the left and these climate activists, you know, have provided great innovation in the world of technology, our phones. Corning Glassworks was uh, started in my district. They have plastic products as well. Foam is now banned in New York State, uh, which is a byproduct of fossil fuels. We can't uh, access the rich Marcellus and Utica shell that we have in New York State uh, in order to provide prosperity, energy security, and uh, what our agricultural companies need and uh, agricultural businesses, farmers. Fertilizer is extremely expensive now. It's difficult to to cultivate our crops because we don't have you know the access to uh, affordable energy that we're starting to see brownouts even in New York. So uh, I think energy is going to be critically important. And um, I think I heard our transportation secretary say, we've got to push as quickly as we can to get everybody in an electric car. Well, that electric car has got to run off a grid. And right now, somewhere between 28 and 30% of the US energy grid is run by coal. So starving our public, threatening our our food supply with uh, energy resources being uh, reduced, causing people to not have access to air conditioning or air access to heat, we're coming up on winter, the inability to travel to get to work. Uh, you know, if you want to drive a, an electric car in my new district, it's uh, probably uh, two or 300 miles one direction. And there's times when it's 10 and 15 below zero up in the in the lake country. So uh, good luck with that. Uh, I mean, these are just unreasonable demands that are being made. And really toward what end? The negligible effect it will have on climate is really what really, you know, we, we're not looking at actual science. And so fossil fuels, uh, President Trump uh, made us uh, independent on energy and, and dealing with oil independence, gas independence, and we brought down our emissions. So uh, all this, you know, electrification is really not going to be the answer to providing us with the prosperity that we need in order to continue to be, you know, a strong leader in the world and to feed 
the number of people that are continuing to be born around the world and uh, the, the growing population. And yet we're one of the countries that has a declining population. We have a lower birth rate. And some of these countries that are using you know, a lot of uh, what they would call uh, coal and other unclean types of fossil fuels, they have a, a you know, some of the exploding birth rates. So you know, a lot of these issues that we're hurting ourselves for some uh, climate goal that really is unreasonable, I think is going to hurt us in the long run if we don't start getting like really applying the science in this case. For sure. And with the midterms coming up, and I, I mean, I, I think it right now it's uh, in, in the realm of 50 to 60 days, I want to say 55 days. What do you think we can expect to see from voters and how will it affect the results in the House and the Senate? Look, I think that Right now, uh, 55 days is an eternity in politics. <laughs> Things can change in a day. Absolutely. Uh, and so that you're going to see a lot of ebbs and flows between now and then. I've always thought that the projections for the number of House seats was, was not going to be as high as some say. I thought 15 or 20. And that's because of election integrity and, uh, that's, and, and some of the redistricting that's happened around the country that didn't necessarily go in the favor of the Republicans. A lot did. But I think we have an opportunity for at least to do that. Uh, and election integrity issues are critically important. And the Democrats are already under a number of dirty tricks right in New York State. You know, they're mailing out absentee ballot applications to uh, Democratic voters. Uh, and it looks like it's an official document coming from the government when it's actually coming from the Democratic Party. So uh, they're not done with election integrity, uh, undermining our elections. Um, they've been doing it for nearly every election. And we always get accused of what they do. So I think that's going to be an issue. I'm hoping that, that that's not going to happen in the future. I just came out with a breaking story in the Daily Caller where there's a civil rights law from 1960 that requires reporting within 22 months of an election of all of the certified voters in an election district versus how many actually voted or how many actually were registered. So how many actually voted in the election versus how many actually are registered in that district. And that num that was all supposed to be disclosed. DOJ is supposed to be on top of it. That I urge the Department of Justice to push that this be done across the nation. Only a few jurisdictions have responded out of thousands across the country. They're ignoring it. I think it's purposeful. Let's see if it's not. Let's see if DOJ pushes to make sure that that reporting is done in the, in the upcoming election, 2022, 2023, 2024, and make sure that we're doing that. And we're seeing the discrepancies that were discovered by America First Policy Institute just by doing a data there. So I, I still don't have faith a lot in a lot of the election process. I think, uh, you know, we have good people that work in the boards of election, but many of them are, have been denied the resources they need to do the job they need to do. And uh, a lot of their work should be done at the board of elections, not done at universities, not done with federal agencies, as President Biden is trying to do with an executive order. Uh, we need to be specialists. Election integrity is critically important to our processes, and it needs to be accurate. It needs to, we need to reserve the private right to vote uh, and the right to have your vote secret from government. And the more the Democrats erode the rules that are in elections, the more likely it is that they're going to know how you vote. And absentee ballots are an area where we could lose that sacred private right to vote. And that's what concerns me. It's not about absentee ballots. It's about preserving the identity of the voter. Because once the government knows who, how you voted, that's when you start to look like the Soviet Union and China and other authoritarian regimes around the world. Yeah. And with the midterms at hand, the, the last question I have for you, and then we'll let you go. What do you think concerns Americans the most, just based on your constituents that, that you deal with in, in upstate New York. Do you, do you think that the voters have had enough with President Biden? And what should Americans be thinking about as they head into the voting booth in November? 
Well, my district, uh, and I have a lot, a lot of new ground to cover up in New York's new 24th district, but people are very concerned about inflation, the cost of goods and services, the cost of gas. Uh, we don't have a lot of public transportation. You know, you are from Orange County, you're on the MTA line. We don't have a lot of public transportation, so people have to drive to work and they need to get to work for their own livelihood. Mm-hmm. Uh, the cost is very high. Uh, the supply chain problems are big. So it's inflation, economic issues, supply chain. Crime is also a huge issue that I hear about constantly from voters. New York State has had a cashless bail system for a couple of years, and it's been an absolute disaster. I've seen crime and the types of crime and the inability of police to really enforce the laws and the rules. And a lot of people are really, really upset about it. And also, you know, feeling like they they have no hope and that they're ready to, to move right out of New York. So those tend to be the biggest issues I hear. And people are concerned about uh, you know, obviously, I hear about election integrity because of my position I'm in, and after my election was so controversial in 2020. But I, I, those are the main issues that are really just the kitchen table issues that people are very worried about. And uh, I don't hear a lot about the issues the Democrats are trying to push. I do hear from a lot of Democrats uh, who are more moderate thinking that are very, very disappointed and unhappy with President Biden. I hear that repeatedly. And I hear from Democrats, you know, whether it's on Facebook or in social media, other social media venues, or in person that say, I will not vote for a Democrat, or I definitely will not support President Biden. So I know that right now, although the polls show him at 30 to 40 percent, I find it hard to believe in places like upstate New York that he even has numbers that high. Hopefully in a couple of weeks, we can have you back on and we can talk and celebrate victories and, and a majority in the House and kind of do a, a, a look ahead to, to what's coming down the pipe as the next session comes in next year. So all that to say, Congresswoman Tenney, thank you so much for joining me today. I appreciate it. Well, thank you so much, Jessica. It's been a pleasure and I'd love to give you an update. Uh, I'm hoping it's going to all be good news, but uh, we're really, really excited about the opportunity to take back the House and really, really save uh, this country and and uh, making sure that freedom and individual rights are paramount and that we preserve our republic. And I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident that the American people are starting to see that the, that we are at a crossroads and this is going to be a pivotal election. Well, you said it. Amen. Thank you. Take Thank care. You. Thanks so much. This has been the Go Pack podcast. Learn how we're educating and electing a new generation of Republican leaders at GoPack.org.